to another episode of Steve's Speed Shop, brought to you by WarrantyWise, the UK's best warranty provider. Get a quote from them today at warrantywise.co.uk. We're brought to you by Mini Sports, specialising in the classic Mini since 1967. And we're brought to you by West Coast Motorcycles. They sell Harley-Davidson's, lots of them, and very lovely they are too. Find them on Facebook at West Coast Motorcycles. If you know and love the world of rallying, you will know the names Ram Sport and Rob Atkinson. In recent times, he's diversified into classic cars and has produced some amazing work out of his workshop. He's also a big man for the motorcycle. I didn't know that, but you'll find that out in the next hour. My guest this week is Rob Atkinson. Rob, I've got a, I've got a theory that the arena of motorsport that a person will end up in is a lot to do with where they're born. I'll tell you for why. I was watching um, a documentary about Bruce Meyer, who was the guy who invented the beach buggy. And he came from Southern California. He was a surfer. He lived in a place called Pismo, which, if you remember, is where Bugs Bunny, when he popped out of the ground, he'd show a carrot and he'd go... <laughs> This ain't Pismo. <laughs> I went there. I was going. I was. I was riding from San Francisco to Los Angeles on a Triumph, and I saw a sign and it said Pismo. I thought I've got to go there because that's where Bugs Bunny used to say he wasn't when he popped out of the ground. <laughs> so, was it always the case that you were going to end up in the world of rallying because of where you're from? Hmm, that's a good one. Um, if you come from the great, I'm going to basically say it. Think so. Yeah, what I'm basically saying is, if you come from the green, twisty, hilly bits of Britain that have got a strong culture of rallying, do you yourself end up doing it? And you're saying no. Yeah, I think it's yes and no. I think it's, um, I think it's the easy option. I think what's more important is, um, I think I was going to end up in motor sport. And i tell you why. Because as a small child, my grandfather used to build, now this is odd, lawnmowers and old motorbikes. So I was sort of brought up looking at Bruffs, Scots, Vincents, and lawnmowers that he fixed. He probably made more money out than lawnmowers. But the, I think the thing is, I was always going to have something to do with petrol. And then it's funny the way the evolution works, but I guess rallying was easy. So we, we spend the, 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 the younger part of our lives uh, battling to go forward, advance, be faster. And then we get to a point where the goal becomes to enjoy the history. Does that make sense? Yeah, was the, well, the question begs itself, Rob. Why not go faster on two wheels with that sort of uh, upbringing? Yeah, well, I never went fast on two wheels. I, I If you were I, surrounded by Vincents and Bruffs well, and yeah, but Scots, you you're, talking, you're talking about the, some of the greatest names in the history see, of motorcycles. I couldn't motorcycle. get on a Vincent at nine years of age. <laughs> so, so what I did, was I nine? Um, let me think, nine. I was eight or nine. And I convinced my father that I should have a TY80. Oh, wow. And I've still got it. Have you? Yes, and at 78 years of age, my father restored it, and it sat here in my office. Anyway, that's another thing. Well, we should explain what a TY80 is, Rob, because... Well, we know. Yeah, well, it's, 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 a, tra- <laughs> it, it's, it's a Yamaha trials bike, but... It is. Um, so did you, did you do the junior kickstart thing? Were you, were you involved with, with junior trials? Um, I was Welsh champion in 79. Right, right, right. Well, there you, there you go. <laughs> right, I'll tell you a story about the worst example of me doing that. I'm, <laughs> I'm, at, a, I'm at a motorcycle awards evening, and it's quite a swanky do, and they sit me next to one of the... He, he wasn't kind of a John Surtees or a Mike Halewood, but he wasn't far off that. I won't say who it was, because it's embarrassing for me and him. <laughs> Ma- mainly for me. Okay. 
and I just started racing cars and was absolutely full of it. I was I, I was obsessed with it, like so many people that get involved with any arena and motorsport are. I couldn't stop talking about it. I thought about it day and night. I probably should have been thinking about my career and, and my family more. <laughs> you know, motor racing is an all-consuming obsession. And so I started talking to him about racing cars. I knew he'd been a, a works motorcycle racer. And we were on the soup course, and I said to him, did you ever think about moving to cars? And he went, yeah, I did, Steve. And I said, oh, yeah, what, 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 uh, what formula? And he went, Formula One. <laughs> so I, I literally just put my spoon in the soup, got up and walked out of the room. I came back about ten minutes later, and I said to him, I must apologise. And he said, no, no, you're OK. He said, I never really did anything. I was rubbish at it. Uh, he said I kept. I, he said I kept crashing, and and they'd they'd say, "Will you stop trying to take the bike line?" And he said, "I couldn't." He said, "I couldn't," because he he you know he'd done a lot of motorcycle racing, and he found that when he was at Brands Hatch or Silverstone or wherever it was, he couldn't he couldn't stop himself from breaking and turning where you know where he thought he should, yeah, and yeah. the problem was the the car would immediately fly off the circuit. <laughs> Because, of course, where a motorcycle breaks and turns is very different to where... Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you see, I never, I never took to, uh, to racing on two wheels. Yeah, because we should explain trials isn't about time. It's about... Well, trials is about precision, isn't it, Rob? It is, yeah, yeah. It was, it, it's, it's balance, precision, um, traction... Yeah, it's 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 a slow form of. of um, but having said that, as I got as I got older, I um, I took to doing enduros, which is a bit of a mix. I mean, it's not flat out, but uh, it's it's um, it, it's it's a mixture really between trials and uh, and, and motocross. And, well, and yeah. I, have to, I have to be honest, I I, I had to give up at fifty because my my bones couldn't take oh. it anymore. So you've got the Hafren there in Wales, haven't yeah, you? Which oh, yes, is yeah, yeah. One Sweet of, one Lamb of... and Havren and Clokenog and, you know, we, we, the, the, I suppose the, the most famous event really was the, um, was the Welsh two-day enduro, which, uh, which I've done a few times and uh, I failed to finish a few times as well, I can be honest with you. Um, that's, that, is, that is hard work. Yeah. I... Really I I used to commentate on trials in in the nineties, and I thought I'd have a go at it yeah. because I'd never done it. I I come from um, Bury Lancashire, which is a small mill town uh, just north of Manchester, slightly to the north of Manchester, and we had in our town uh, a bike dealer called Jim Sandiford, mm. and he was the importer. I had bikes off him. Yeah, because and you'll know which bikes he imported. The, yeah. the Montes- Montessa, Montessa's was his, uh, was yeah, his yeah. brand. Yeah, yeah, and I used to look in the window. Um, but my dad was, you know, he worked in a mill. He worked, he worked in a paper mill. And those Montessa motorbikes were expensive. Yeah. They were they were very high-quality tackle, but they had a price tag to match. And so yeah. there, was, there was no way that I was going to be uh, doing schoolboy trials. But later on in life, when I started commentating on it, I thought I must attempt the sport and... Uh, so I started as a clubman. I bought a Yamaha, yeah. like you did, a 250. Yeah. And uh, I started to get trials and motocross news and mm-hmm. look for the regs and, and, and put in my entry. And um, the first the first event I turned up at was in, in Yorkshire, across the hill from Lancashire into Yorkshire. And it, I think it was the Sheffield Club that organised it. Yeah. And yeah. two in front of me, lining up on the first, uh, on the first stage, Dougie Lampkin. Yeah. <laughs> like, I just thought, I thought I, well, here's the thing, yeah. I can't think, Rob, of another another form of motorsport anywhere on the planet where you could just turn up to an event where we we got one of those carriers for the back of my four-wheel drive and we'd just lift up the trials yeah. bike, because obviously very light compared to most motorcycles, onto the back of the car, and me and my dad and my son, three generations of us, would go off on a Sunday and I'm lining up behind Dougie Lampkin, like yeah. one of the greatest trials riders of all time. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, I was not too dissimilar story, really. As a, as a schoolboy, I was walking a walking a section outside Chesterfield on the, and I know what it was called. It was the Spire Two Day Trial, and um, I bumped into this chap. He was like a mountain. 
And he sort of pushed me aside and said, uh, mind how you go, son. And later I realised it was Martin Lampkin. Yeah, I thought you were going to say Martin, yeah. Doug, Dougie's father, yeah. Yeah. Because, of yeah. course, they, they're a dynasty, aren't they, oh, the Lampkins? Oh, absolutely. Well, there was, you know, the Lampkins and... Uh, Rathmull and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was uh... well, of course, Malcolm Rathmull was um, Graham Jarvis's mentor, and, and uh, Graham was one of the sort of three or four Brits, along with Steve Colley and Dougie Lampkin, it, yeah. who yeah. were very prominent in in the world of trials. Yeah, well, Colley should... was about a year in front of me. Was he? Um, and a Manxman. That's right, he was the Isle of Man, Steve, yes, yeah. We have quite a few racers and famous uh, sportsmen on. Well, there you go. Two they, and four wheels hold from on. the Isle of Man. Hold on, there's my theory, Rob, because... Well, well I was going to say about... I said about the geography, didn't I? Yeah. There, there are far more, percentage-wise, I think, the population of the Isle of Man. The whole island is about 70,000. And there have been many, many more TT racers than you'd expect from that oh God, yeah. relatively small population. Yeah. Because it's right there... Oh, literally right there on their doorstep. So it is, it that is. was my theory with your prominence in the world of rallying. How can you be from the part of the world that... that you, are, you, are you originally from, from North Wales, Rob? Yes, are you from, yeah, yeah, born and bred here, yeah. 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 yeah my same mother, town my, as Dave Richards. My mother went to school at in London, Clandidno. Yeah. She, uh, she went to the Loretto Girls' School there. Just up the road. Yeah, and she said that the nuns used to make them march up and down the Great Orm. In, in their gym slips to, to stop them getting all hot and bothered about Elvis and James Dean and that sort of thing. <laughs> but it is a beautiful part of the world, but when you've got roads like you've got, it, you almost can't, can't, you know, can't not get into cars and bikes and stuff like that. You know, I meet people all the time in, in this game, in sort of radio, TV, whatever, and they live in London or they live in Los Angeles and, or Paris, and they, they don't, not only do they not have a car, they don't even drive. They haven't even got a driving licence. It's amazing how many people don't. Yes, yeah. I mean, uh, it was uh, it was on my. Ra- I think it was on my radar from uh, from the moment I, uh, I I put some petrol in my grandfather's Morris Oxford, and I was probably twelve at the time. So um... go on. Can you beat my dad? My dad was my father was from farming types, from sort <laughs> of. Um, uh, between Bury and Rochdale, up in the, up in the sort of foothills of the West Pennines, he was regularly driving at thirteen, fourteen. How old were you oh, when you set out? Man. He was. Man, I like that. I like that. Well, you've got to remember there was very little traffic on the road. Um, yeah, but I, I, I need to be careful what I say. Well, here's the thing, Rob. It was my dad's considerably older than you are. If you say you're a year older than Steve Colley, but. Um, <laughs> It was it was tolerated. I mean, my dad tells infamously tells a story about being sent to collect my grandfather's Austin 16, which had expired because it had, he he was driving back from the pub and he ran out of petrol or something like that. So my father was sent with a can of petrol to go and retrieve it at, at age 14, and he's driving he's driving back in it, big Austin 16 with a 14 year old lad at the wheel, and he said out of nowhere a police sergeant appeared and stood in the middle of the road and held his hand up. And my father said, I was thinking, oh, this is it. I'm, I'm for the high jump, as they say. And he said to me, he, he said, are you Alan Berry's lad? And I went, yes. I thought, there's no point lying. And he went, right, well, you'll be, go- you'll be going past Captain's, which was at their farm. You can take me up that way. I'm not walking. <laughs> he said, and he just got in the... Because he, he, he recognised the car and he thought it was my granddad. So he thought, oh, I'll get a lift off, off Mr Berry. Yes. Oh, it's his 14-year-old son. Well, I'm not walking, so I won't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, so we, we drove in silence about the two or three miles that it was. Yeah. And then we got to the farm. And he said, I'll just come in and have a word with your father. He said, and I don't know what he said to him, but he said, I, I carried on driving after... I think, I think... I'm not saying that was right, Rob, but do you yeah. not think that there was a kind of... It kind of highlights the relationship between the police and the public in terms of motoring. Yeah, I, agree, I agree, but, you know, unfortunately, we just have to cut our cloth accordingly. Um, so many things have changed. Uh, Do you think there's any point in having a really fast car or motorbike in the UK? On the oh, road, absolutely no? not. No, hmm. absolutely not. I mean, what's, have, have I got a fast car? Yeah, but do I drive them? No. <laughs> no, I mean, I just... I, I, no, I haven't got a fast motorbike really anymore. They're all, they're all, you know, V-twins and chuffers and puffers, really, now. Um, 
We're very lucky where we are. I mean, I, I, you know, I have an awful lot of roads that I can drive, and I won't see anyone. But you know that the 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 um, the pool, is, so to speak, is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, so go on, Rob. When was the first time you were pulled up for speeding, and what was it in? Um, the first time I was pulled. Oh God, it was. Um, it was. Um, yeah, it was in my Ford. It was in my Ford Escort, and it was. It would have only been a few weeks after I passed my test because because the car didn't last much more. <laughs> <laughs> I sm- yeah. I, I've only ever had one Ford Escort, and um, I hit a lamppost in Western Supermare while messing about on ice. And this is a story that I've told a few times, but I think it bears retelling. And um, I thought. I remembered that somebody in a pub had told me... This is the problem with me. I believe things that people tell me in pubs. I remembered somebody in a pub telling me that if you hit railings or a lamppost or something like that, you get a big bill from the council to, re- to replace them. <laughs> so I thought, I'd better scarper quick before I become responsible for this lamppost. Yeah. So I backed up. I, re- I put the car into reverse, and we were on ice, so I wasn't making too much progress. And I realised that it was falling towards me, towards the car. So I speeded up, and then a voice in my head said, turn the wheel. Because <laughs> <laughs> I thought, oh, I'd better hurry up and get away. Or else well, that, do you know that, that... what? I've got a similar story about a lamppost. Go on, then. I, oh, I would have been more oh, 17, I suppose, 18, and I decided, right, I'm going to have to have a go at this rallying. I need a car. Now, if I recall, yeah, no, it wasn't my granddad's car. I'd already smashed that one. I had anyway. I got my <laughs> hands on a Mark One Escort, but it was a four door. So I convinced my uh, there was myself and my granddad, who would have been in his probably in his sixties by then, as opposed to yeah, he would have been sixty or seventy. Uh, we welded the back doors. We got an engine out of a Cortina. We spent months building this car. Months. Now, my brother and my father, they, they were laughing. What the hell are those pair up to? What are they doing? And it'll never go. Anyway, eventually the car was finished after many months. And up the, up the yard comes my brother and he says, uh, oh, he says, it's all right. He said, uh, you're going to let me have a go, innit? Now, bearing in mind, this was about four o'clock in the afternoon and I'd only taxed it at three. I said, well, go on then. We're going to have a little gallop. So we went up and down around the lanes. Car was performing as it should. Chuffed. Handed over to my brother, who started off down this road, tearing down this road. And I thought he's going a little bit, a uh, little bit sprightly. We came to a fork in the road. He couldn't make his mind up which way to go, left, right. And I thought, which way is he going? Anyway, he didn't. He went straight up the middle flattened the lamppost and wrote the car off to bits. <laughs> and that's why my rally career didn't start until I was about 20. How long was it before you started talking to your brother again? <laughs> and it was, a, I can tell you, it was a while. It was, a, it was quite a while, I can tell you. And his first words were, sorry, I'll help you fix it. Anyway, the car never went again and I, and I built another one. When you talk about crashes, um, it, it, it's interesting, isn't it? That I mean, we we probably both know people who didn't didn't make it through those years. Oh yes, uh, quite a few. Uh, lot on motorbikes. Yeah, yeah. A lot of lads I was in school with, even in school, let alone other friends, never made it. And do you know what? The most innocuous things. I had a great pal mid-twenties probably when I had road bikes before I packed them in a great pal of mine he used to love racing and he, he did the he had a bit of a go at the TT and all the rest of it anyway he slipped off in Aberdeen Park was that in a, there was racing there wasn't there was there? racing was, yeah, yeah. he was in a race but what we should we should tell people it is an actual park with kind of trees and exactly. picnic areas it's not a circuit it's not re, it's not really a race and circuit and I'm but not is, sure whether it was a curb or a tree but there wasn't but anyway gone in an instant yeah and it's it's I, I it's, it's so um, 
it's it's so easy, especially on a motorcycle, to 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 have the misfortune of uh, of, uh, of losing a life. Hey Rob, you know, tell me about it. I got no- I got knocked off about it's, it's it. What what date is it today? It's I'll tell you what it is. It's exactly four months ago. Months ago today, I was minding my own business on my German-built motorcycle, just trundling through the centre of Salford, going past the cathedral, where I was confirmed in the Roman Catholic uh, tradition at the age of ten. I was just looking up at its baroque splendidness when a man in an Audi decided that he wanted to occupy oh. the, the same physical space as me. God. So. After I'd rolled, the funny thing, well, not the funny thing, it wasn't, it, to be honest, not much of it was funny. No. Um, but I sort of hit the side of the car and then span off into the opposite lane where pe- people had to kind of swerve around my, my, <laughs> my rolling uh, physical self. And I sort of, I came to a stop on my back and was staring up at the spires of the cathedral, and I could, I could almost hear the organ music. You know? ah. <laughs> so it was like, I'm thinking... I was thinking, I'd better get in there and confess quick, because <laughs> I've, I've, done, I've done some pretty sketchy things over the last sort of four decades or so since the last time I was in there. Oh, um, but I, despite the broken bones, I retained enough, uh, enough humour for when the guy immediately... You realise how, how, what the maternal instinct is, because it was, it was quite heavy traffic, and straight away there were women sorting the whole thing out immediately taking charge and said, right, you move that, you, and then, you know, sorting me out. Yes. And right. um, the bloke staggers over. He was quite a nice guy, but he nearly killed me. And he said, um, oh, oh, I'm really sorry I didn't see you. So I, I pointed at the 1200cc giant BMW that he'd yes. just run into yes. me and said, oh, shall I get a bigger motorbike? Yeah. Yeah, well, that was a good review. Yeah, <laughs> do, you know, yeah. do you know what I mean? <laughs> You know, I, I mean, I touch wood, I'm touching wood here. I've, I've never had a motorcycle collision on the main road. Now, you know, I've broken collarbones and shoulders and all sorts of bits, hitting trees and hitting things. But my, my road riding, I've been very fortunate. But I think you, even if you ride in the middle of the road with your, you know, your chest out and you look at every driver in the eye and you make yourself as conspicuous as possible, there's still that chance that somebody isn't going to see you. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what they're not doing, and Rob. that is frightening. It is. And I'll tell you what they're not doing, Rob. They're not stopping me from riding a motorbike. No, they don't stop they, me either. They, but can you put know me, what? they can put me in a blinking box. That, you know, I'm delighted that I don't have the urge to go down the main road at 140, 50 or <laughs> mile an hour anymore because when you get to that age that you see a car in a junction but you're not sure whether you can see the white of his eyes, yeah. after a little while you think, ah, I've had enough of that. Yeah. And I'm highly delighted that I have. <laughs> Call me whatever you want, but I'm highly delighted. <laughs> yeah, I... Yeah, I I know, I know what you're saying. I'm not quite there myself, but I, I don't think I'm too far off. Well, no. you know, I, I, uh, yeah, I think whatever you do, how, you, you know, it's it's very difficult to ride to ride a motorcycle within the uh, um, within the speed limit and all the rest of it. Rob, if um, you could, you know. if you could have, if you could only have one motorcycle. Oh, forget it. What do you mean, forget it? Oh, not a chance. <laughs> not a chance. Come on, if I said to you, right, yeah. okay. You're on a desert island, but that desert island is the Isle of Man, and you, oh. you, you've got to stay there. But you can only have one bike to ride on the ride around the TT course at your leisure. Um, it, what, what, what would that one bike be? Oh, you'll hate me for this. No, I won't. Go on, yeah, probably not. It, for the simple reason that it was one bike I've ridden there. Ah. And I'll tell you the story. I think it was 1996. I think. And I've been to the Isle of Man, uh, TT, and the 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 the, um, the cars. I think it was 26 years on the bounce. Wow! And the reason being, I have a very good friend there who's who's also a very famous uh, motorsport person, and we used to stay in his grandmother's. Anyway, I when Foggy won it, he won it. On the bike that that was before 
was it the 996? Yeah. Am I, am I close? It was, I'm sure it was a, I'm sure it was a Ducati 996. And there was, there was four of them there. And there was a dealer who had them. And because of Mark Higgins's connection... I knew it was going to be Mark. Yeah, because of Mark's <laughs> connection, we both got to jump on. And it was a 996, I think. And I've never driven anything. I've never ridden anything quite like it. <laughs> it was awesome. Now, of course, it was awesome because it was the Isle of Man and because it was in the TT week. But if it was the Isle of Man, then that's the bike I'd have. I've got, I've got a similar story that's almost like the exact opposite. So I don't know why I said it was similar, because as I said, it's the exact opposite. I, my partner uh, lives mainly in North America. She's in the film business. And, and because of the kind of last-minute nature of what she does, like we were once in a hairdresser's in Manchester at like half past four in the afternoon, and she got a phone call, and then it was like, quick, finish this haircut, because I've got to go to Los Angeles. So, you know, I had to drive her from Manchester straight to Gatwick. You know, it was kind of, it's kind of that. So she ended up here at very short notice. And I wasn't going to go to the TT, but she'd never been. So that's why, that's why I'm explaining why I didn't have a motorcycle with me. So I get there. We managed to get, like, the last hotel room on the island. And the next day we're sat outside and some friends come by and said, Oh, Steve, yeah, oh, this is my partner. Oh, hi. Lovely to meet you. Where's your bike? I said, I haven't got a bike. I said, we've brought a spare. You can have that. I thought, fantastic. This will do. <laughs> and then they got it out of the back of the van. It was. Do you remember the Yamaha Diversion? Yeah, it sort of rings a bell. I'm, I'm, it was kind of... A, I know what to expect. Yeah, it was a UJM, a universal Japanese yeah. motorcycle, built, built down to a price. Yeah. An RC30 or a Ducati 996 SPS... It was not. No. But it was a motorbike, and that was all I cared about. We had to borrow helmets. We borrowed helmets, and we set off for a lap of the course. Full-face helmets, I hope. I'm, I'm not sure. What, I can't remember. They were just... You know when you borrow a helmet and you realise it's been on a shelf in somebody's garage for years? It's got that, it's got that unmistakable mustiness about it <laughs> <laughs> that, that can never be eliminated. But we didn't care because we were on a motorbike, we were on the island, and we were going round the TT course, the, the greatest race circuit in the world, and we were on a motorbike. Yeah. Wow. Anyway, I found out that this bike... It turned out that the bike had belonged to a dispatch rider, and we couldn't work out whether it had been round the clock twice, three or four times. But you could tell, I mean, anything that had any sort of texture on it, like the foot pegs, was worn completely smooth, like it had been rubbed by a million boots or had a million gloves on it, you know, completely smooth. And as a consequence, various parts were very worn to the extent that it would suddenly change gear. Obviously, everything inside the gearbox was so loose that if you went over a bump, it'd either change up or down, and you didn't know which <laughs> without you touching the control. So I'm riding along. I'll do the noise. So I'm riding along, and all of a sudden it goes because it suddenly changed down one without me touching it. And I thought, blimey, it's the ghost in the machine. So we got up right on top on, on the mountain on, on top there, and uh, where the you know where the motor museum is? Yes, yeah, yeah. On the top. So we pulled over there, and there were two likely lads pulled up just having a yeah. moment up there, and they, they recognised me. And uh, one of them said, um, that your bike, is it, Steve? <laughs> and I said, no, I've borrowed it from a friend. And his mate said, he's no friend. <laughs> 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 and, I, and I thought, I thought, and I said, no, it's 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 not much of a motorbike, but it's a motorbike at the end of the day. Do you know what I mean, Rob? Yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. And do you know what? Yes, but I was going to ask you something. Go on then. Down the mountain on that motorbike, or faulty will in an escort. You're going to ask me how fast I went over no, the, no, uh, no, the bump, no, down the, the bump at the crag. Motorbike, yeah, or faulty will in an escort. Right, this this is a problem because Speed Shop is is probably more about cars than motorbikes. I, I, I generally, if I had to say, we probably talk about cars for seventy five percent. But I take I'm a big fan of Jay Leno and what he does on the internet with it, with his fantastic collection of cars and bikes, and I have a very similar take to Jay's. Um, I love cars. 
I love bikes, but motorcycle love is different. There's something different about it. And I think it was best explained to me by an Italian academic man of my acquaintance who also has his own brand of handmade motorcycles. And he said, Steve, it's just like the days of horses and carriages. A car is a carriage, a motorcycle is an iron horse. Oh, yeah, you're bang on. And that's why it's different. That's why your relationship with a motorcycle will always be different. Yeah. And I know people who love the cars. We had a guy on, Adrian, the, the other week from, from Kent, who's owned a Ford Escort for over 30 years. It was his first car. It's the yeah. car he learned to drive in, and it's probably the most modified Mark II Escort in the world now, yeah. having spent three decades and many, many tens of thousands of pounds on developing the car. And I... What came across on that show, I think, was that man's amazing relationship with what is an object. You know, it's not a living thing, but to him it's almost become like a living thing because he's so much of his life and so much of his time and so, you know, he's got his dreams invested in that car. And I totally understand that. But I say again, not a motorbike. It's not a motorbike. No, it is a, it's an odd one, that, isn't it? I mean... Yeah. I suppose if you look at it, you know, to go on a car journey on your own, it'd have to be, it'd have to be a Miura, a Lamborghini Miura, or a very rare Ferrari. But really, a car journey on your own is can be a struggle. But a motorcycle journey on your own, that's dead easy. I met a guy called Eddie in the Sahara Desert. And uh, he'd gone past us. We were in a Lada Neva, me and my pal. And he went past us on this old BMW GS, one of the original GSs, I think, the 80. Yeah. Uh, the BMWs. Red yeah, I've got a 79 one here that I still ride. Yeah, have you? Yeah, I love it. Is it red and gold? It's just red. He went past yeah. us on this red and gold GS. Yeah. And um, later in the day, we ended up at the same campsite. Yeah. And I went over to talk to him, and he said that, he got to a point in life where he just wanted to, like, knock his small business on the head, get rid of the stress of that, yeah. and just go on a long motorbike ride. So yeah. he was heading for Timbuktu. <laughs> Do you know why? I'll tell you. He said when he was a teenager, he was going out to see a girl. He'd get dressed up in, like, his best clothes. Yeah. <laughs> and he'd come downstairs, and it'd be, like, a Wednesday, Wednesday evening or something like yeah. that. And his mother would say... Where do you think you're off to? Timbuktu? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think every mother said that. So, <laughs> every so, mother said that. So he thought, he, he got to his early 60s, and he said, I used to get up every Monday morning wishing and praying that I could find enough work to get my workforce of, like, 15 people at his light engineering business through the week, mm-hmm. you know. He said, and I just, one morning I just thought, Sod it! I've I've done it all this time. I don't I don't know any anybody. I'm providing a living for all these people for all these years. Yeah. I'm finally going to live for me, and I'm going to get on this motorbike, and I'm going to go to Blinking Timbuktu. Yeah. I mean, I have I have my motorcycle fix every second year. I go on I go on a road trip. It's only a week. Don't go that far, but I go on a road trip with. I think I'm the only Brit and, uh, and about 29 Norwegians. <laughs> and, and Why is that funny? <laughs> it's hilarious. I'm the only one. I don't even speak Norwegian other than... Well, it's pidgin Norwegian, I suppose. And um, all these guys, they're all in their 60s and their 70s and, and whatever. And what they do is they, they hire a truck... They stick all their bikes in, whether it be Oslo or Christian Sandos of Anger, and the truck drives to Spain, um, Portugal, Romania, wherever. Everyone flies in, gets their bikes out the back of the truck, ride round for a week, put them back in the truck and fly home. And that's every second year. And in fact, uh, was it next month? Uh, it mean, uh, um, June or July this year, we were meant to be going to Ireland, but obviously it's been canned. Um, but that's that is a fix that I need. Mm. You know, I need to look forward to that. And because of time restraints, I mean, I've got I've got lads to pay and things to to arrange. I actually I actually hire bikes now. 
I, I arrive in the airport, pick up a rental, and you know, I've had a lot of fun on some bikes that I would, wouldn't really necessarily want to own. I turn my nose up at them. But I still have an awful lot of fun. And as much as I want to put me Harley or, or you know, um, whatever I've got here at the time, it would take me another week to transport it there. Whereas I jump on the plane, pick up the keys, ride the bike, give it back and come home. Rob, what was the last bike, that, the new bike that you saw that stopped you in your tracks like they used to do back in the day? Because I'll tell you for why. I was thinking it's a long time since I've been walking in the street and I've seen a motorbike and it's literally, literally stopped me. But I was just walking down Portland Street in the centre of Manchester and a bike went past and it parked up. Yeah. So I went to look at what it was, and it was a BMW R9T. Oh, is that the one that looks a little bit sort of space-like? It's the one that looks kind of... I thought, that is spot-on for someone like me. It's I know a, the one you it's mean. A, it's a bit retro, but it's yes. not too retro. It's a bit Street Fighter-ish, but it's not too Street Fighter-ish. And I thought... I was, I was looking at it, I thought, yeah, that's just about right. There's very little that I'd want to change about that motorbike. And I was thinking, it's a long time since I've looked at a new bike and thought that. The last time I saw a bike that stopped me in my tracks and I went, oh, my God. And apparently it's one of two. And it was made by Lotus. Oh, yeah. And it was in a pal of mine, or in fact a client of mine, um, who... Who has um, he has a, he has quite a small supercar dealership uh, in France, and sat in the corner was this Lotus. Now, it's it's a mix. You know, a Confederate, a Hellcat. Uh, right, I've got I've got a great story about that, but I'm not going to tell it now. I'm going to let you carry on. Yes, well, I'm familiar. I've ridden a Hellcat in a, in a tennis well, in a tennis court. I'll leave it at that. Well, I haven't. I'd kill for one. I like them, but this Lotus was a mix between a Hellcat and a superbike. It had a bit more sport about it, but it still had that, it, it had that back end and the, and the lines of, of, of a, you know, almost a street fighter. And that was, boom, you know, that did do it for me. I think I know the chap that you're talking about who has that bike. <laughs> we, talked, we talked about Vincent's earlier. Would there be any... Uh... Would there be any association with that particular motorcycle brand and the chap you're talking about? Yes. Oh, there we go. (laughs) So we're having a nice in-joke there between us and everybody else is listening is thinking, who the hell are they talking about? No, you're there. He probably probably wants to remain quite private about it, so we we shall leave it at that. Robert, when you came on, I thought we were going to talk about your incredible career involved with, with rallying and rallycross and all that sort of stuff. But I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you back on to talk about that at a future date. Yeah, I'd love that. I've actually enjoyed that. I've enjoyed that, yeah. Well, we haven't finished yet, mate, because I was going to say, what I'm going to talk about now instead is the classic car side of what you do. Yeah. So I was thinking, how would you move from being a very successful, I think, team runner or or facilities provider in the world of of rallying with the name that you have and the kind of, you know, the the knowledge and experience that you've got. Why, other than a love of classic cars, would you branch off into that? Um, um, Well, a love of classic cars, obviously, if you haven't got that, if you haven't got passion, then you're no good at anything, um, unless you're just lucky. Um, so that that's that, that's the first thing you have to have a love of it and you have to have a passion. Um, I tell you what it is as well. I think I'm a bit I'm a little bit OCD and I like to do things as best as I can. And when you get reasonably good or reasonably successful at something, then it becomes desperately frustrating if you can't continue to improve. And I think that's where we got in the rallying. Because it's, it's, um, it, there's an evolution in it. Things evolve, people evolve, and, um, and you, know, you, can, you can set yourself in a certain position, and if you, can't, if you can't evolve, you've got to leave. Now, my clients, very, very fortunate to have had some great clients, and they, as they get older, they begin to say, well, I'm, you know, I'm sick of this focus now. It's, um, you know, it's cost me half a million quid. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there'll be a lot of people. There'll be a lot of people. We get an old escort. That's only 
probably yeah. going to cost me 150 grand. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good idea. And then the other one wants a 240Z. And the other one wants a Porsche. And it, bec- it, it I was allowed through my clients to evolve. And then, so, so, so it, is, it has been a bit of an evolution, really. And I've now got customers that, in the 90s, I was fettling their Cosworths. They then made an awful lot of money, and I was fettling their Focuses and their Subarus. Now they have a collection of classic cars. Mm. So I have been, it, it, it has been a great evolution, which is a little bit, it's a lot of luck, but it's also, it facilitates my passion. And I think if I wasn't passionate, I, I wouldn't be any good at it. I met a guy in the States who restored um, classic British motorcycles, mm. and I had never seen um, quality like I saw in this chap's workshop. Yeah. Uh, very nice guy, very easygoing chap, very amiable. And I said to him, um, have you always done this? And he said, no, no, I used to work at NASA. And I thought, all right. <laughs> I thought that, that would be why everything about these bikes is utter perfection, because yes. you've come from an industry where perfection is the only standard that is acceptable. And you're the same. You've come from motorsport where the car- corners can't be caught. No. You can't just stick something on there because the car will never clear scrutineering. No. Everything right. is going to be scrutinised. Everything right. is going to be inspected. Everything has to be passed. And, and yeah. of course, not just that, you're going to put someone in the driving seat and if yeah. you're responsible for that vehicle, you want to be absolutely certain that it is not going to kill them. Yeah, yeah, So yeah. the only standard that's acceptable is perfection. Oh, absolutely. There's no two ways about it. You know, it's all about, it's all about testing, developing, uh, understanding, and going through processes. And what I find really interesting in the classic cars uh, are that, yes, we can apply some of that knowledge base, we can apply some of that engineering and, and, and foresight, if you like, or preventative uh, um, process. But the other thing I find is the challenge of retaining the car's originality. That's a new thing. Mm. Um, and, I mean, we, we took in a 1926 AC the other week, and it sat in the workshop here for... Well, it's been here for maybe a month or six weeks or whatever, just before lockdown. But that will probably sit here for another few months while we consider how we tackle it. Mm. Because even wiping the dust off is going to affect the car. Yeah. Because since 1959, nobody's touched the damn thing. Wow. Now, I want it to run. I want to be able to use it, but I don't want to lose what's what's there. So, you know, to me, that's a completely new challenge. 20 years ago, we'd have ripped it apart and rebuilt it. It would have been unrecognizable and the best AC that was ever made. But it wouldn't have been the 1926 AC Royale, would it? You know, so we're 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 relishing all this new. Um, no, it's hard to say new. It's been it's been you know over a decade now. But the the, the new sort of challenges in, in between classic cars, and we've also we've almost gone. I think we've almost gone full circle. You know, it and, and as I said in the beginning. It's a little bit like it really is a roller coaster, because you, as a young man, you, your your vision is to explore every bit of potential, and it's all about the future. It's all about speed and gear changes in a millisecond, and the full. And then you you get to a point where you crave for what was before, and and I think if someone says now to you. Do you want to do two laps of Myra in a Metro 6R4 or an RS200 or maybe maybe one of the most advanced rally cars ever, an 0506 Focus? I'll take the Metro, please. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> I used to commentate on Rallycross when those 6R4s were getting used. Yeah, no, yeah, no. yeah, well... No, nope. right. The Irish, the Irish particularly had a had, had a fondness for using them for rallycross. Yeah, uh, they couldn't keep up with Will Gallop's Peugeot, 
which I think I think you've just mentioned the RS two hundred, and I think yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I remember that the road going version of that held the record for a long time of naught to a hundred and back to naught, which I even as a boy I always thought that's the real test of a car. Never mind naught to sixty or top speed. Yeah. Naught to a hundred and back to naught yeah. is the true test of performance. Yeah. Yeah, Straight absolutely. line anyway. And the RS two hundred held that for a long time, but I remember going as a passenger in Will Gollop's Peugeot, Rallycross Peugeot, yeah. and uh, that was considerably quicker from 0 to 100 and back to 0 than an RS. It was an absolute yeah. monster! Yeah, oh. yeah. Well, when you think about it, you know, the 1985 International Spec Metro, proper engine, on the right tyres, sub, well and truly sub three seconds, I think maybe two mm. and a half seconds to 60. I mm. mean, that is brutish. But my point being was that they had been reduced. This would have been mid-90s when I was... Uh, we did Top Gear Motorsport, which was on kind of a sister show to Top Gear, and, and we, we, we did trials. We ha- they tried, the BBC tried to highlight areas of motorsport. A, it could afford, yeah. like rallycross trials, stuff like that, and, and B, which normally didn't get too much in, in the way of publicity. And I ended up commentating at Lydon and places like that. Ah, yes, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, when I say Lydon and places like that, I think we did Lydon and Pembry. That was about Pembry, it. Pembry, yes. Yeah, that was about it. But um, Metro 6R4s were being used because they were available and they were fast and they were cheap. Now, of course, they're still fast. They're not that much available. And the last thing that a Metro 6R4 is, is cheap. They're not cheap. <laughs> They're not cheap, no. But what do pe- why do people want them, Rob? What are they using them for? Because them lads were just the, the Irishman. There was a the fella called Carnegie, and he was... Yeah, he, yeah, yeah. Dermot Carnegie. Dermot Carnegie. He's still, uh, he's still about now, although not quite as, uh, not quite as rapid, but he's, uh, he's, in, he's still competing target yeah, yeah. now. Yeah, but w- w- what would they be used for now, Rob? Well, they're, 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 almost, they're almost entirely um, collector's piece, pieces now, but there are a few events. I mean, there's an event in particular. In, there's one in Italy and one in San Remo, um, and they have a few little show days here in the UK where, where people take their Group B cars, and, and they use them. Uh, but, of course, since the FIA banned them in their, you know, in their original form, they became worthless, hence... All of the all all of the metros were being used on rally cross and uh, road cars because they were ten bob and a conquer <laughs> when when they really should have been a fortune um, and and it's it's down to rarity you know it's rarity simple as that Rob do you think this that Group B is is romanticised now Yes of course yeah and, and so it should be as well Yeah well no I was oh you're right yeah, you think yeah you, yeah absolutely because it's ridiculous Yeah. Ridiculous. I mean, I, I, in my early days as, a, as um, uh, working in the sport, and, and I, 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 I stumbled across a Group B Mitsubishi sat at, um, at rugby at Rallyart, only to, to find that the battery was under the co-driver's seat and access was via bonnet pins. <laughs> the seat was retained with bonnet pins. <laughs> it was a it, it was an ejector wow. seat wow. and the battery underneath. You know, they were they were ridiculous. There was no you know, I mean there, there was no real um uh, safety was you know, I suppose in today's terms it was taken for granted. Mm. You know, and um you know, unfortunately they 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 had to do what they did and it was probably right that they did it. Was it your favourite? Was the Metro your favourite Group B car, Rob? You'd be the man to ask. Oh, gosh. Um, well, it was, but that was probably because of Tony Bond. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it was, but the association with the car and Tony Bond... Hold on a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we are just over 45 minutes in. Jerry Marshall and Tony Pond get mentioned in approximately 50% of these shows. <laughs> <laughs> Well, my favourite driver of the era was Roger Clark, but only because I was fortunate enough to, to have met him and I was good friends with his son. I, for men of a certain age, you have to be, you have to be 
embedded in the sport to know. It's almost like knowing about Jerry Marshall and Tony Pond is almost like if you're on some sort of if you're involved in some sort of cool music scene and you know everybody else likes ABBA and you like the Clash. It's like everyone else goes yeah, they on. They all know the lead singer, but nobody knows the drummer. Yeah, everybody <laughs> else talks about all the big stars of the day. But knowing about Jerry Marshall and Tony Pond is only for... I was going to say it's only for a few, but it's for at least 50% of the people that come on this show. I, I loved seeing Tony Pond in the, in the, in the 6 or 4, and in the, particularly in the TR8. On, don't on, you just love seeing him in the service area having a cup of tea and a biscuit? Well, famously, I'm, I'm trying to... Was, was it, were they in Africa or was it, were they in Greece or somewhere like that? And, and the footage of the time shows the other drivers being attended to by medics. Oh, Lit- ice water, yeah, yeah, Lit- yeah. And he literally. told to man up and get a cup of tea. Yeah, and he's just there in a, in a bucket hat. He, he, the, thing about, the thing about Jerry Marshall and Tony Pond, I think, uh, Jerry Marshall was to saloon cars what Tony Pond was to rallying, and they were around at yeah, a similar time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they were, they were from another era, and I think they were like the footballers of the day. It, Tony Pond was a a bit George Best. I'm not, you know, in the... He didn't look... George Best didn't look like a footballer. He looked like a rock star. Tony Pond didn't look like a rally driver. He looked yeah. He looked like he might be the best player in the Stranglers. You I, know, think he, 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 the, I think that was the era. Because, you, you know, you can go to Barry Sheen and James Hunt, you know. Exactly. But, uh, but I was see Tom Price that nobody's ever heard of, who was the, the one of the... I think he was the only Welshman that yeah. got into Formula One, and he was from Rithin as well, actually... Um, he was an apprentice with my father before he made it into Formula One. But when you see him, he he he, he could be um, he could be the act that that uh, precedes Tom Jones in uh, Las Vegas. Well, I think he didn't look like a Formula One driver. No, <laughs> and and that's why that's why Rob, I think that Lewis Hamilton is shamefully underrated and, oh, I and, think and, so. and ignored. He's a gem um, He's, for, yeah. for British sport. But, you know, people overlook a lot. Uh, yeah, but the thing about Lewis is, he's obviously the best out of all of them. I, yes. like you, I am fortunate enough to have access to people who really, unlike, unlike us two, who really know what they're talking about when it comes to Formula One. And they've said, if you put them all in the same car, Lewis would be a third of a second quicker per lap than everybody else. Oh, he's a machine. He's absolutely brilliant. But, but he's not like the others. He doesn't look like the others. He doesn't say. He's his own man. He yeah. will not play that corporate game. He won't put the hat on and do as he's told. He walks his own path, that guy. Yeah. And I don't see why he isn't given the credit for, for being what he is, which is an ind- a maverick, an individual, yeah. a, a man who knows his own mind and does things his way and still... Is is dominant in his sport. I'm a huge fan, but then maybe I'm a bit patriotic because I'm a, was a, I was a fan of Hill and Button and, uh, and and so on. But I'm a huge fan of. Uh, I like I like I like Mansell. We're talk, we're talking um, just days after the passing of Sir Sterling Moss, yeah. and um, I met him. You must have met him a few times as well. Uh, once or twice. Yeah. 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 <laughs> he was a great blog. We did. Um, we did a feature, I made a programme for the BBC about classic Italian scooters, uh, Vespas and Lambrettas, and, and you know, right. this, the whole yeah. social history of why they were created after the war, because, you know, Piaggio had been in the business of making four-engine bombers, but there, yeah. wasn't, there wasn't much demand for them in 1946, <laughs> so, they, so they had to diversify. And um, Sterling Moss was the f- Sir Sterling Moss, or Sterling as he was back then, was the first Brit to have... A Vespa scooter. He, he was in Italy. He was in Italy. He saw them and he thought, "I'm having one of them." They, because he lived in London and he thought, he thought you could wear a suit and you could ride yeah. that without yeah. getting oil on your suit, which was, of course, kind of the whole purpose of these things. Yeah. So he, he he bought it, got them to stick it in the race truck, and then went and collected it from Brands Hatch or something and started riding it around London. And people were like, "What the hell's that?" He was the first. So he was still riding them 40 years later. And we met up with him outside the Hilton on Park Lane in London. And he came on his Vespa, which I think he got off Vespa because, you know, they knew it was good publicity. And Sterling was never one to miss a business opportunity, was he? No, 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 no. (laughs) Which I I do not blame him for. So the director said, could you just ride up and down Park Lane a couple of times so we can film you? So... 
We hear it coming. <laughs> and he's carving. The guy's got to be well into his sort of early, mid-70s at this point, carving through the traffic like an Italian teenager going through the streets of Rome. With a big grin on his face. Yeah. So after he's done this a couple of times, the director flags him down and says, um, could you slow it down a bit? And he went, he said, just trying to create a bit of interest, old boy. <laughs> What a great oh, I look. love it. Yeah, that is brilliant. <laughs> that is absolutely but brilliant. it's kind of... My point being would be that he was my dad's generation's idol, not yes. not mine. And, and so for me at my age, it's Mansell. And, and it's Mansell for a couple of reasons. One, because I'm a working-class kid from Lancashire who was brought up in a terraced house like the ones you see on Coronation Street with no yeah, front... Yeah. No front, no front garden, you walk straight yeah. out onto the street. And there was a Brit, but clearly a guy who had not, unlike so many British racing drivers, been bought... And I'm, this is nothing against them. You can't, you can't... People can't change where they come from. But Nigel Mansell was obviously just a regular guy, but he was British and he was quick. And yeah. that's, that's why... And people could go on about his accent and his moustache and all that... <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and to me, it's just it's just snobbery. It's just because he wasn't like Mike. Oh, I thought he was brilliant. I thought he was I, great. I, I also I also have fond memories of, of looking what, 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 watching James Hunt, thinking, "My God, he is he's someone else." Yeah, absolutely. He's someone else. So he whether, won't, whether it's Hunt, Mansell, Hill, obviously the Hill Junior, I'd have loved to have, uh, I'd have loved to have seen. Uh, more of Graham Hill because he looked like the he looked the same maverick, you know, yet suave. Um, he, he had this persona that could only belong to a rock star or a Formula One driver. My favourite picture of motor racing doesn't have a car in it. It's Jackie Stewart, Graham Hill, and Jim Clark right. on a yacht <laughs> in their speedos shooting clay pigeons. Thing. You just think, Bonkers. you just think, those guys lived, lived every moment. They knew, I think, in a way, I don't know, maybe I'm over-romanticising it, but maybe I'm not. They knew that what they did was super dangerous and that there was a very good chance that they, yeah, would, they wouldn't survive. I just wonder it. how, I, I think, do you know what, I think they all did with hindsight, but at the time... Were they aware? I don't think they could be that aware at the time. I don't think... I think they become more aware with hindsight. We all do. And, and I honestly don't believe that they had even a modicum of fear or common sense at the time. <laughs> um, that, that's the way I see it. But, but you know, who, who knows? I mean, you can never really see inside their mind, can you? If you could go back and watch a race or a rally or a TT, this is going to be good. Which one would you go back to, Rob? And don't say Mike Elwood and the Isle of Man on the Ducati. You're not that one. That, that, we'll, we'll put that one aside. One that I was physically present. No, one, you can go back. You can you can go back oh. and you can you can watch the peaking to Paris. You can you can go back to the to the Millimiglia with Sterling and Jenks in the Mercedes. You can go to you can go and you can be at any motorsport event in history. Which one would it be? Oh, God, blimey! Which one? I tell you, which one it would be. I tell you where I tell you where I would and I and I could physically transport myself there and be there. Right. That's more interesting. Yeah. I wanna go to Le Mans and watch Birkin chase the German in his SLR Mercedes. Wow. And chase him down. That's where I'd like to go. Wow. But of course I'd have to go back to nineteen twenty something. <laughs> I don't really know when, but it was it was twenty something, and I've I've watched that obviously black and white footage, and I would want to be there. Yeah, and of course it was it it, it epitomises a lot of what we've been talking about over the last hour or so because that was a man, Tim Birkin, Sir Henry, yeah, who 
sacrificed himself in his car so that his teammates could beat Johnny Foreigner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I can't remember the chap's name either, but... Caracciola! You do... Sorry? Wasn't it Caracciola in the Mercedes? That's it. Yes, it was. Yeah. And, you know, you have to sympathise because, you know, there was only one of him and I think there was about six Bentleys there waiting to um, <laughs> waiting to pick up the pieces. But, I mean, to, to watch that and listen to those, um, those blowers howling. Um, and they were only a few hours from finishing. And, you know, they weren't blooming miles off. Um, when when they, when it all went uh, when it all went pear shaped for them, but while it was good, I mean lap after lap, that's that's the uh, that to me is that's I think that's probably where maybe where all of the other fabulous races came from. Well, Rob, that would be an excellent place to stop. So that's what we're going to do. We've covered about. A fifth? Oh, what, I think it's only I'm about a fifth. It's <laughs> only about a fifth. Because, because I'm now thinking, I'm now thinking, oh, no, I want to be stood in the pits in Monza watching Valentino. <laughs> That's it for another episode of Steve Speed Shop. Don't forget to tell your friends. Do not miss the podcast. We've got a really good um, catalogue of shows that you can listen to if you've got nothing better to do. And uh, see you next Wednesday. <laughs>